This morning, we're continuing our series looking at the basics of who God is and what it means to follow him. We've explored what following Jesus is like and what God requires of us. Today, we're looking to answer the question, who are we in Christ? Earlier, we heard the story of Jesus being baptised by John and God appearing to declare how pleased he is with his son. By the way, you might find it helpful to have the passage open in front of you. It's Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. So, what does this passage tell us that might answer today's question, who are we in Christ? Well, let's see what links we can find between Jesus, God's son, and us, God's people. That might help us answer the question. Let's start with the very first word of our passage, which in most translations is then. The word then implies there is something interesting that happened before Jesus' baptism, and that might give us a clue as to its, as to its significance and link to us. So in verses 1 through 12 of Matthew 3, we learn that John came to preach in Judea, telling people to repent because Jesus is coming to judge the world, and people from across the whole region came to be baptised by him. So, here's our link. In Matthew 3, both God's people and Jesus himself are baptised. But why? God's people are baptised as a public confession of their wrongdoing a symbol of turning away from sin and towards God. But we know from elsewhere in the New Testament that Jesus did not sin. So why does he insist on undergoing this ritual washing away of sins? John is curious about this too. In verse 14 he says, I need to be baptised by you, but instead you come to me? Jesus' answer is this, it must be done to fulfil all righteousness. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, Matthew uses this word righteousness several more times in his gospel. And each time it means behaviour that conforms to God's will. In other words, Jesus gets baptised because it's part of God's will or plan for humanity. God's plan, prophesied throughout the Old Testament and told to us in the New, is that Jesus was to die in our place so that we can repent and be forgiven of sins and share eternal life with him. Part of that plan is our repentance, symbolised through the washing away of sins through baptism. Jesus didn't need to repent, but much like John led the way to Jesus, God's plan was that Jesus would identify with us, leading the way to the Father through baptism and repentance. And though he took his place with us in baptism, he also took our place instead of us by dying on the cross. Okay, so now we have a good idea of how Jesus' baptism demonstrates our relationship with him. He was baptised to identify with us so that he could take our place on the cross. But that doesn't completely answer our question, who are we in Christ? Let's read through the rest of our passage. So in verses 16 and 17, after Jesus is baptised, God's Spirit descends on him and a voice from heaven says, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. 
So God the Father declares that Jesus is his son. So what about us? What's our relationship with the Father? Well, if we look further into the New Testament, at Paul's letter to the Galatians, in chapter 3 he says, In Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So through baptism, we become like Jesus, allowing us to be children of God. So who are we in Christ? We are God's children. And wow, that sounds awesome. But what does that actually mean, being children of God? Well, let's read the last part of that Galatians passage again. All of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourself in Christ. So, being a child of God is to be clothed in Christ. What does that mean? Well, in ancient Roman society, when a young person came of age, they would lay aside their childhood robe and put on this adult's toga. This represented their move into adult citizenship with the full rights and responsibilities that came with it. In the same way, Being a child of God means laying aside the childish way of living that the world offers us and clothing ourselves with the robes of righteousness that reflect our Father God. So what could these spiritual robes look like? Well, in Colossians 3, it talks about believers clothing themselves with compassion, kindness, gentleness and patience. All Jesus-like virtues that put other people firmly before ourselves and contribute to a peaceful, strong, God-centred community. So, being a child of God means imitating Jesus' virtues or clothing ourselves in him. What else does it mean to be a child of God? By the way, if you are following in Matthew 3 with the Bible in front of you, you might find it helpful to now turn to Romans chapter 8. So in Romans 8, verse 14, Paul says, Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Then the end of verse 15, And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Now this word Abba is the same Aramaic word Jesus used in Gethsemane during his desperate prayer to the Father, when he knew he was about to endure intense pain and suffering on the cross. It's an intimate, affectionate term for a father, something like our modern-day daddy or papa. So what does this tell us? Being a child of God means having an intimate relationship with Father God, akin to the one Jesus himself enjoys. And as if to hammer this point home, Romans 8 calls Jesus' followers children of God five different times. He also uses a similar phrase in verse 15, which is adoption to sonship. Now, firstly, the fact that Paul, a product of a male-dominated culture, uses this male-centric phrase one time, shouldn't take away from the fact that he's clearly addressing all followers of Jesus, regardless of gender. Second, much like today, Being adopted in Greco-Roman culture didn't have to mean being lesser in any way. According to adoption customs at the time, fathers could confer on an adopted child all the legal rights and privileges that would be given to a biological one. Being adopted, as it were, does not take away from the fact 
that children of God have genuine Christ-like intimacy with the Father. So, being children of God means clothing ourselves with Jesus' virtues and enjoying intimacy with Father God. What else does it mean to be a child of God? Well, if we stay in Romans 8, in verse 17, Paul says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Amazing. So in the same way, being a child of God means being clothed in Christ and having Christ-like intimacy with the Father. It also means we are not only heirs of God, but co-heirs with his one true son, Jesus. Okay, so again, sounds amazing. Let's figure out what it actually means. Being an heir means being entitled to an inheritance. So what do children of God inherit that Jesus also inherited? Well, Colossians chapter 1 talks about the Father's kingdom of light that, thanks to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, his followers are set to inherit. In other words, we inherit God's heavenly kingdom in eternity. So, wow, what a great inheritance that children of God get to enjoy. But a couple of caveats. Firstly, back in Romans 8 again, in verse 25, Paul tells us that we do not yet have this inheritance. We must wait for it patiently and confidently. Children of God will have the inheritance, but not yet. Colossians chapter 3 calls this being hidden with Christ in God. Children of God are secure in their future salvation, but it is not yet fully realised. Secondly, well, let me read the rest of Romans 8, 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Ah, so to inherit God's glorious eternal kingdom alongside Jesus, we must share in Jesus' suffering. Okay, so a bit of a downer there. But again, let's figure out what this means for us. The immediate context is persecution, something which Paul's original audience, the early church, experienced a lot of, and our spiritual brothers and sisters in other parts of the world still do today. And let's be real, the torture, imprisonment and killing of Christians in other parts of the world does not in any way compare to the suffering we experience as believers in the UK. But equally, we shouldn't ignore the fact that Christian suffering does exist in this country, usually in the form of rejection. If you've ever offered gospel tracts or prayer to random people on the street or hot drinks outside the church building, the rejection you feel from the blank stares, attempts to ignore you, the panicked backing away, that's a form of suffering. If you've ever shared your faith among friends and family, or told them that you are or were celibate until marriage, or that you tithe, or that you love God more than your own family, the rejection you feel from the awkward silences, the arguments, laughter, or attempts to quickly change the subject, that's a form of suffering. Now it does seem unfair that our share of Jesus' suffering is a lot less than those of other cultures but we do still experience it in smaller ways. And in all likelihood, the more we step out in faith, 
the more we become like Jesus, the more we will suffer, even in this country of relative religious freedom. However, once again, let's read on. Romans 8, 19, Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So, yes, children of God will suffer, but however bad present day suffering gets, it will be incomparable to the utter glory of eternal life with the Father. Okay, so let's summarise what we've covered. Jesus was baptised to identify with us. Jesus' identity is as God's son. In Jesus, we are also children of God. Being God's children means clothing ourselves with Jesus' virtues, enjoying intimacy with the Father, and sharing in Jesus' suffering, but more importantly also his divine inheritance. So, what do we do with all this information? Where do we go from here? Well, here's what I take from it. For those of us who have committed to follow Jesus, let's approach our times before the Father with a renewed sense of his relationship with us. During times of prayer and worship, remember, we are not trying to connect to some distant, uncaring creator who wants little to do with his creation. We are instead approaching our divine Father, who the scriptures say desires for us to seek him. The father who allows his children the privilege of enjoying Christ-like intimacy with him, of clothing ourselves in the robes of Jesus, and of sharing in the son's divine inheritance. For those who have not yet made a commitment to follow Jesus, I encourage you to seek the Heavenly Father through prayer, to pick up a Bible and learn more about what it means to be a child of the one true God through Jesus Christ. My hope is that you will soon share with us the amazing privilege it is to be counted among the children of God. So to all of us, I say, approach the Heavenly Father in awe of the knowledge that being his child is a special privilege, one that, through the gracious gift of his one true son Jesus, every person is invited to accept. <laughs>